We're in the midst of a series of sermons in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Old Testament, and uh, one of the overarching themes in Genesis has been one of promises, where God makes promises to a number of, of different people. He makes a promise to Noah, and he makes a promise to Abraham and Sarah, as we've been looking over at the last few weeks, and, and then also he makes a promise to Isaac. And now we move into a, a section which is symbolized by the color of red, and I'll reference that in a, a little bit later on, but we move now into... Uh, the next person in line, and that's Jacob. And to really understand uh, God's work in Jacob's life is to really look at uh, Jacob's relationship with his brother Esau. Esau is the older brother. And as we do, we're going to do kind of a scriptural uh, flyover, a little bit of a biblical flyover, as you can kind of see in the video here. This is going to be rough terrain. Uh, these chapters from chapter 25 that we're going to look at, and we're going to take bits and pieces of 25 and 27 and make our way to 33, it's rough terrain. This is a messy, complicated uh, relationship, and it comes to, que- comes to topics that you may have questions about, and I, I encourage you to read uh, some of the sections that we won't have a chance to get to because we have to start with 25 and make our way to 33 to really get an idea of this kind of relationship that these two brothers have. And it brings up questions that are really hard to answer. So if you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 25. And to uh, do the reading for Genesis 25, I asked Sophie Law to start it off for us this, this morning. Chapter 25, starting with verse 21. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. The babies jostled each within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. While Jacob was a quiet man, staying among the tents, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, while Rebekah loved Jacob. All right, thanks, Sophie. And so right away we see in this, this relationship between these two brothers that they're going to be rivals. I mean, right from the outset, uh, as Rebekah comes to the Lord to inquire about the sort of the jostling inside of her womb of these two boys, what's going on is that there's going to be some tension. There's going to be some conflict. Let me pray for us as we continue. Father God, I lift up uh, this sermon to you, Lord, and pray that you would use uh, this story uh, in our lives, uh, that you would help us to kind of delve into uh, this very complicated, this very messy uh, relationship between two brothers. And as we do, Lord, as we look at this story, uh, for us to realize that this didn't just happen, but it happens in our lives. That each of us perhaps has a story like this, that a relationship where there's conflict. And God, I pray that you would speak to us and that you'd work in our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would prompt us to take steps in those messy relationships. And that as we, we do that, God, that all glory would go to you. In Christ's name we pray. Everybody said? Amen. So we see this in terms of uh, of uh, Esau and Jacob. If you're taking notes this morning, in verse 23, the, the term, the key term there is that they're going to be rivals. 
that there's going to be a, a rivalry in this relationship right from the get-go. And then as, as Sophie read, we move down to chapter 25, verse 27. We see this uh, in terms of, of who they are. And also we see parents playing favorites. Isaac loves Esau, and uh, Rebecca loves Jacob. Parents, uh, take a note here, not a good plan. Okay? By the way, this is just an aside. If you study all the families in the Bible, you will not find a fully functioning family. Honestly. Came across this in a commentary. Even when we go to the family of Jesus, there's a, a scene where uh, Jesus is healing people and his mom and his brother actually think he's insane. They're trying to pull him out. That's about as close as we get to a functional family is Jesus' family. But all the families in the Bible, by the way, have problems, have seriously is- serious issues. And I think in a way God's trying to tell us you can learn from these failures. There's, but there's not, a, there's not a functioning family. So if you look for it, you're never going to find it. All right. Anyways, uh, but we see this sort of uh, the parents being partial to uh, the sons. And, and we pick up here in verse 29. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. This is how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. And also uh, Esau has red hair, i.e., the Red Mountain. <laughs> All right, verse 31. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? And this is kind of hyperbole. He's not dying of starvation. He's not. He's, he's hungry, but uh, Jacob kind of takes advantage here. First, you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn of his brother to his brother Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil stew. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left, and he showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. So this relationship moves not only from a rivalry, now it's contempt. So in your Bible, you want to underline that phrase, contempt. Things are getting worse in this relationship. And, and what's important for us to understand, in the Hebrew mind, the whole backdrop to this is that brothers take care of one another. What we have here between Jacob and Esau is not, uh, I would say, a template, uh, an example of how brothers are to act. In fact, in the Hebrew mind, the brothers take care of each other. So when Cain killed Abel, and God said, you know, his blood cries out to me in Genesis chapter 4, and and, uh, Cain's response to God is, am I my brother's keeper? And it's actually a rhetorical question. The Hebrew response to this is, yes, of course you are. You are your brother's keeper. So Jacob taking, uh, taking advantage of Esau right here, when Esau is very vulnerable to get the birthright. The birthright's a big deal in the ancient world. The birthright was the inheritance. It was something that, as the eldest son, which Esau is, is by a matter of, you know, maybe a minute or two being twins, uh, gives that away. And as a result, Esau shows contempt to his brother Jacob. Let's move on now. Let's go to 27 chapter 27, and we're going to pick it up in verse 26, because um, Jacob's name actually means deceiver. Uh, it actually means schemer. Later, later on, God changes his name to Israel, but his word actually means literally in Hebrew, a schemer, and that's exactly what Jacob is. We pick it up in 27, verse 26. And the scene is, is that their, their dad, Isaac, we talked about last week, Abraham and Isaac, uh, Jacob and Esau's father Isaac is on his deathbed. 
and he can't see very well. And he's about to give away the blessing. That is, the, 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 the person next in line that would be the patriarch. Abraham, Isaac, and then with this blessing, um, the, the son would be actually next in line. And, and, and in a certain sense, it's like what, whoever uh, uh, Isaac gives the blessing to is going to have the throne. So this is a big deal. To be the next in line of this covenant that Yahweh God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. So this blessing from, uh, from Isaac is a big deal. And his eyesight is going bad. And the thing we know about Esau is he's kind of a hairy guy. So Rebekah, who's partial to Jacob, kind of gets a costume on him. And kind of puts fur and hair on him. And makes him sort of smell like the outdoors because Jacob didn't go out in the outdoors. He kind of stayed in the kitchen and cooked and things like that. But Esau was a hunter. So he had the, the, sort of the scent of a, of a hunter. And, then, and Jacob is going to try to trick his father Isaac to give him the blessing, to be the next in line in the patriarchs. Verse 26, we pick it up. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come a little closer and kiss me, my son. So Jacob went over and kissed him. And when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he was finally convinced. He finally convinced that this was Esau. He blessed his son. He said, ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of the outdoors, which all the guys said, amen, which the Lord has blessed. And here's the blessing. From the dew of heaven and the richest of the earth, may God always give you abundant harvest of, of grain and bountiful new wine. And men, may many nations become your servants, and may they bow down before you. May you be the master over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. And here's the Abrahamic covenant that's repeated, the promise this is the, the handing off of the throne. All who curse you will be cursed, and all who bless you will be blessed. So Jacob tricks. He schemes. He deceives his father to get the blessing, to get the throne. And we pick up in verse 41. Um, in between here, I encourage you to read this. We don't have time this morning. But Esau comes, and he's like, he's like late. He sees the blessing given away. And, he, and, he, and Esau says to his dad, is there another blessing you can give. And Esau says, or, uh, Isaac says, no. I just gave it away to Jacob. And as a result, this is what happens. Verse 41. From that time on, Esau, Esau, what? Hated. Hated Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing. Rivalry, contempt, now it's hate. This relationship is fractured. It's gotten worse. And some of us know exactly what that's like. A relationship that started out more as a rivalry, something small, and then it gets worse and worse and worse. And now Jacob hates, or excuse me, Esau hates Jacob because their father had given Jacob the blessing, given the throne to him. And Esau began to scheme. And it's interesting, in the Hebrew language, that word scheme is the same word as Jacob's name. It's very ironic. I will soon be mourning my father's death, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Sounds like something from the Godfather movies. But Rebecca heard about Esau's plan, so she sent for Jacob and told him, let's listen, Esau is consoling himself by plotting to kill you. So listen carefully, my son. Get ready to flee to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay there with him until your brother cools off. When he calms down and forgets what you have done to him, I will send for you to come back. Why should I lose, you, lose both of you in one day? And as a result, Jacob is on the run, and he's on the run for a lot of years. So this relationship between these two boys is so bad that Jacob's on the run for his life. And for many years, they have this distance. Their relationship is fractured. 
If you're taking notes this morning, you can write this down. Conflict dominated their relationship for years. Conflict dominated their relationship for years. And the thing is, is that this is the story of Jacob and Esau, but also this is our story, isn't it? This is our story. All of us experience relational conflict. Um, in a perfect world, we want, but as imperfect people, we experience these kind of conflicts. Perhaps not to this degree, but we have conflicts in our relationships. I think oftentimes we think that when it comes to a marriage, for example, you can take one person who's imperfect and another person who's imperfect and try to make a perfect marriage, but it doesn't work that way. You know exactly what I'm talking about is that we have relational conflicts. We have problems. It's interesting, Ecclesiastes, and I'm just going to do a paraphrase for you. You don't have to turn to this. But Solomon makes an observation about human life. I've been watching people in the world, he writes. You know what I've discovered? They're not nice to each other. People don't treat each other kindly. People misuse each other. People abuse each other. People lie to each other, just like Jacob did to his father Isaac about the blessing. People fake each other out. People are phony in their relationships. People wear masks. They cover up. They abuse. They take advantage of each other. And this is the story of Jacob and Esau. And it's also our story. So when we come to this, when conflict grows, perhaps from a rivalry to contempt and perhaps to a hatred, what happens inside of us? What, what, what happens in our lives? I think, first of all, we hold grudges. I think that's one of the ways that, and, and maybe you're here this morning and you have a relationship or you have a person in your life where something like this has happened. And maybe you have a grudge towards them, that you have this feeling inside you, I'm going to get back at them. And you're, waiting, you're just waiting for that opp- opportunity. Deep inside you, you have this bitterness, you have this, this angst, and you're just waiting for the right opportunity where you can get back at them. And you have this grudge. But you know, holding grudges is self-destructive. It's counterproductive because it hurts you more than it's going to hurt the other person by far. Yet we hold these grudges. We have these sort of anger fantasies in our minds of how we're going to get back at them and how we're going to be victorious. It's, it's kind of like this scene. Um, I remember uh, when I was little, I used to watch kind of the old uh, movies, uh, The Three Stooges or The Little Rascals with my Uncle Lindell. Uncle Lindell was like a father figure in my life. And he would rent uh, these old movies, and we'd watch them on film, and he'd put up a, a white sheet on a wall, and we'd watch uh, these shows in The Three Stooges. And I, I know I'm dating myself, but I remember this one episode in The Three Stooges where Mo is just slapping Curly across the chest. And that's kind of what Mo did. And Curly said to Larry, he said, you know what? Next time he does that, I'm going to get him. So Curly goes over and gets some, a, a few sticks of dynamite. He puts it on his, on his chest and he tapes it. He says, the, the next time Mo slaps me across his chest, it's going to blow his hand off. And, and we do that with grudges, don't we? We think it's going to hurt them, but it's actually going to hurt us more. It's self-destructive. This, this feeling that we hold against people, it actually eats us alive. It, it, it hurts us. It's counterproductive. It's self-destructive. And not only do we hold grudges, but very much like Esau in verse 41, he hates Jacob. I mean, that's a strong term. But he hates Jacob. And I think for some of us, we're reticent to, to use the word hate. 
I think that, that we're reluctant to say, I hate this person. Because we, we kind of uh, categorize the word hate for groups like ISIS, or perhaps tyrants and dictators, or maybe hate groups or racists. But it's interesting how insidious that negativity creeps into our heart that we truly hate a person. Hate being defined as revulsion or being repelled by a person. And, and maybe on the outside we're, we're nice and kind, but deep in our heart we, we do have a hatred if we're, if we're to be honest. And the thing about hatred, and I think this is the way that God designed us in our lives, this, this hatred that we have in our lives is so strong of an emotion against people. And, and, and I think for us, as we hate people, I think it can, it can creep into our lives where it's simply a, a glance, a certain look at a person. Or maybe it's gossip, or maybe it's slander. Or, or maybe it's bullying them in a certain way. But this hatred is so insidious that it, it creeps into our lives. And God didn't design you for that. In, in fact, uh, doctors have done studies on this, and actually uh, hatred has a boomerang effect that when you hate somebody, instead of like building a wall that you think is going to distance you between you and that person, the opposite ha happens. It's a boomerang effect. When you truly have hate towards somebody, it actually causes you to be more attached to that person than ever before. Because of that intense emotion that you have towards them, um, instead, instead of building a wall, it actually brings you closer to that person. And I think that's what we see in the story of Jacob and Esau, is this, is this hatred and this, uh, this aversion to him and what's going on. And I think grudges, holding grudges or hatred, it's, it's kind of like candy, isn't it, to us? There's a sort of sweetness to it on the surface. Because I think for us, that when it comes to holding grudges, when it comes to actually hating somebody, is that in a way, it, it helps us feel better about ourselves. That we feel superior. At least I'm not like that person, we say, right? At least I didn't do that. And as a result, we kind of puff up our chest and we feel better about ourselves. It kind of feeds our ego. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I want to encourage you this morning, instead of building walls of grudges and building walls of, of hatred and building walls of contempt with people in your life, and you're going to have conflicts, you're going to have conflicts, but instead of building walls, build bridges of peace. Reminds me of this children's story. Of course, it begins with once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was a farmer. He owned this, this large acreage, and he had farmed this land for years. He got to a point where he was so old, he couldn't farm it anymore. But his dream came, um, came into fruition, that now he was able to give this land to his two sons. And he divided the land equally. And there was a stream that ran in the middle of, of the acreage, and, and one piece of the land he gave to the one son, and the other piece of the land he gave to the other son. It was a 50-50 split. And he said to the sons, I want you to farm this land, and it's been my dream, and I want you to be the best of friends. I want your families to be close. I want you to grow up and have memories together, and this is yours. And for the first few years, that happened. 
The brothers were best of friends. One would see the other one plowing in the field. They'd wave at each other. They'd have barbecues. They would have uh, holiday celebrations. The families were close together. But one day something happened. Somebody said something. There's an argument that ensued. And pretty soon it grew into a contempt. And then eventually hatred to the point where they didn't talk to each other for years. Their families stopped doing things together. And when, the, when the one, one brother saw the other brother in the field... He would kind of turn away from him because he didn't want to see him. He was so repulsed by his brother, and the hatred was so strong, he didn't want to look at him. And this went on for some time. It was like the snuffing out of their father's dream that these two sons were at odds. And one day, this carpenter was walking up the road, and he came to the one brother, and he said, I'm looking for work. Do you have any work that I could do uh, here? The brother said, yeah, down by that stream right there, I'd like you to build a wall, a really high wall, because my brother lives over there, and I see him sometimes working in that land. I don't want to see him any longer. Whenever I see him, I just get sick to my stomach. Build a high wall all along that stream. The carpenter said, okay, and, and, the, and, the, and the brother went off to town. He's gone for a few days, and he came back to the farm, and what he saw, he was incredulous. Instead of a wall, there was a bridge. A bridge crossing the stream. And he walked down to the bridge, and his other brother was already there. And his brother said, thank you so much for taking the first step, that you actually built a bridge. And then that brother apologized for all the things that happened, all the years that were wasted apologized for the things he said, apologized for the stuff that he did. And then the other brother apologized as well, and they, they kind of met in the middle of the bridge, hugging each other, crying. It was a poignant scene. And in many ways, it was sort of the recapturing of that dream of the, their father, that they would become the best of friends. They forgave one another. And then the one brother went towards his house. He saw the carpenter, and the carpenter was leaving, and the the brother said to him, where, where, where are you going? I have some more work for you to do um, on my farm. And the carpenter said this, I have more bridges to build. I want to encourage you, instead of being a person who builds walls, be a person that builds bridges of peace. Be a person that builds bridges of peace. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. Take the first step. Don't wait for the other person. Take the first step. Build the bridge. Who knows what, how they're going to react, but as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. And we see this in the story of Jacob, that after all these years, decades, had passed by, where Jacob was on the run, that finally he contacts Esau through some, some commissaries and he says to, gets the word to, to Esau, can we meet? It's been all these years, can, can we meet? So Jacob takes the first step. And moving ahead to chapter 33, if you want to pick this up in Genesis. Genesis chapter 33, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 and it's a remarkable scene. And Jacob hears... Uh, through different people that Esau gets the word about this meeting. They haven't seen each other for years. 
and that Esau is going to come with an army, an army of men. But Jacob says, that's okay. I, I, I want to come to him, and I, I want to I build a bridge of peace to him. We pick it up in verse 1. Then Jacob looked up and saw Esau coming with 400 men. Imagine that for a moment. As these men are coming perhaps down a hill, and the dust is just kind of going up in the air, 400 men, and Jacob is standing right there, and he's probably saying to himself, boy, this sounded like a great idea last week. 400 men. This is, all, this is all that Jacob has here. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and his two servant wives. Verse 2, he put the servant wives and their children at the front. Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. And the, that's going to be important for us the next few weeks. We're going to study Joseph's life, and he's a very special part of, of Jacob's family. But verse 3, Jacob went on ahead. He went in front of the pack, facing off with Esau and 400 men. As he approached his brother, he bowed down to the ground seven times before him. Wow. Something happened in Jacob's life during all those years. He realized his mistakes. He realized what he had done, that he had deceived. Bowed down seven times. Seven is an important number in the Hebrew language. Seven means complete. In other words, what uh, Jacob is doing is that he is submitting himself completely to his brother Esau without any promises. He has no idea how Esau is going to react. Verse 4, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they both wept. They made peace. They made peace. It's a beautiful picture. And for you and I, and in your teaching notes, you can write this down. Be a peacemaker. Be like Jacob. And you might be at fault. You might be the one that caused the problems, but to actually take the steps to build a bridge of peace. Or perhaps it's the other person, and they're, in your mind, they're like 99.95% guilty. But what can you do to be the person that takes the first step, like Jacob, like the brother building that bridge, the carpenter, rather, building that bridge? And I was talking to somebody about this, where after a number of years, um, this conflict that they had but with their sister, they finally came together and, and she took the first step in apologizing. And you know what she told me? She said, it was so easy. It was so easy. At first I was nervous, I was scared. But once I apologized and we were able to forgive one another, it was so easy. And then she said this, I wish I would have done the, did this 15 years ago. One of my favorite authors on making peace and forgiveness is the late uh, Professor Lewis Smeads. He was a professor at Fuller Seminary in Pasadena, California. And I think he writes the book on forgiveness and making peace. And I love how he defines forgiveness. And, and you're taking notes this morning. I really encourage you to write this down because I think a lot of us have a misconception when it comes to making peace, when it, when it comes to actually forgiving somebody. Forgiveness is not forgetting. That's important. I think we say that is forgetting. It's not forgetting. Forgiveness is hard. Forgetting is actually easy. Um, there's no miracle really needed to, to forget. All you need is a bad memory or perhaps enough fear to drive the memory into the dark pit of your unconsciousness. In fact, if God could have, have forgotten, he would, he would not have needed a cross. He could have simply said, it doesn't matter. I've forgotten it. So forgiveness is not forgetting. 
also, forgiveness is not excusing. And sometimes we do that. You know, we'll have, perhaps you're in a marriage, and you'll say, well, my husband's that way because his mom raised him that way. So I'm just going to excuse his bad behavior because of that. Or I'm going to excuse this person in a certain way. Forgiveness is not excusing. But forgiveness is, you've got to catch this, forgiveness is the miracle of a new beginning. It's the miracle of a new beginning where you say, we're going to start right here. We're going, to start, we're going to start in this relationship where we are right here. We're not going to try to go back in the past and fix those things. But we're going to start right here where we are. That's what forgiveness is. And we see that in Jacob and Esau as they say, we're going to start now in this relationship, being brothers, where we are right now. Not where we were 15 or 20 years ago. It's the miracle of a new beginning. And any time forgiveness takes place, we've got to catch this, is that um, any time there's reconciliation and we're able to um, um, recapture a relationship with somebody, it's nothing short of a miracle. I think oftentimes we think of miracles as, you know, healing somebody coming back from the dead into life, things like that. But any time forgiveness and reconciliation takes place, it goes against the grain of what's, so often common in our life and it's a miracle of God it's the work of God working in our lives also when we engage in making peace when we build bridges of peace what's beautiful about this is that it's not simply just an arbitrary act is that when we engage in making peace it actually creates spiritual growth in our lives you grow spiritually when you engage in such actions we talk about spiritual growth a lot here at Maple Grove Covenant Church as de- developing a devotional life where you read the Bible and you pray. That's very good. Keep doing that. Or it might be sharing your faith or it might be serving in a certain capacity. If you want to grow in your faith, if you want to grow spiritually, make peace with those who, who you're at odds with. Because when you do that, there's certain things that grow inside of you. I want to walk through four of them. And we see this in the story of Jacob and Esau. First of all, when you make peace, it grows courage in your life. It's like Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.16, um, God did not give you a spirit of, of fear, but he gave you one of power and love and self-discipline. In other words, he's saying God gave you a, a spirit of courage. And any time that we confront something, like a strained relationship or a fractured relationship, or perhaps a relationship where there is a wall and we want to break that wall down and build a bridge is that courage to confront. And it grows, that courage inside of us. Also making peace grows humility. We see this in Jacob's life. He bows down seven times. Can you imagine that? Think about a person in your life right now that you're at odds with, a mother-in-law, a boss. And on Monday morning, tomorrow, you were to go before them and bow down seven times. Can you imagine something like that? It's exactly what Jacob did. So how can you go, I mean, maybe not the bowing part, but how can you push yourself really beyond normal means to show humility? And that's the way to building bridges of peace. And we see that example, especially in Christ, is that he humbled himself to the cross. Next, making peace grows our patience. It grows our patience because it's not going to happen right away. When we make peace, 
and we start from where we are, it's going to take time for, really for that relationship to build, and it's going to take patience. And I think that's very true, as I suspect, of Jacob and Esau, is that it took time for them to regain that relationship. It's not like all of a sudden the next day or the next week, they're the best of uh, brothers. It takes time. Ma- making peace grows our patience. It grows our reliance on the Holy Spirit. And also making peace, lastly and importantly, it grows the grace within us. God forgave you. Why can't you forgive others? Why can't you forgive others? I heard a story recently about a group of Bible translators, and they were trying to figure out how to translate uh, for this unreached people group, this tribe. They were trying to translate uh, the word peace. As they were translating the Bible, they were trying to translate peace into their native language. The problem is that there wasn't any word close to that word peace in that native language. And they were trying to come up with something. And then finally, a a tribal chief who was wrestling with that same word helped these Bible translators out. And he finally came up with a phrase. It was actually a word picture of what peace meant in their language. It's this. A heart that sits down. It's a heart that sits down. What a great image. God sent the Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to take your sin in mind, to rise from the dead, and then to sit down uh, at the right hand of the throne of God. And as Christ completed his work, you and I may sit down at peace with God the Father. It's like Jesus in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the sons and daughters of God. And because we sit down or at peace with God the Father, he gives us the power through a changed life to be able to sit down and be at peace with other people. In your teaching notes, a couple of questions I have for you. Who might be a person in your life right now where you need to build a bridge of peace? A person that you need, in a sense, to bring your heart and sit down. Brian's going to play on the guitar for a couple minutes or so, and this is a time of reflection. I'd like you to really deeply think about maybe someone in your life right now where you can just write down their name And if you're worried about somebody who's sitting next to you, just use acronyms, abbreviate if you need to. But also, not only writing that that name or names down, what's the step that you're going to take this week? Don't let this get away from you. What's the step that you're going to take this week to move towards building a bridge of peace? You are called to be a peacemaker, not a wall builder. And when you do this, You bring glory and honor to God. You live out the way the kingdom of God is. It's a kingdom of peace. What steps can you take? This grudge that you hold in you, this hatred that that you have, is eating you alive. It's only hurting you. And the only way out of it is to move towards building peace with that person.